Good evening. I'm Axis. I'm Moner. And you're listening to The Late Night, a horror podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's April. That means Easter, Passover, Earth Day, and Valpogisnacht. And if you're a horror fan, Alien Day. Yay! That's right. April is the month we at The Late Night celebrate all things biomechanical and 426 by taking a trip to LV426. So tonight... We're going to start off with Roger Donaldson's Species from 1995, starring Natasha Henstridge, and we'll follow that with 1979's Alien, directed by Ridley Scott, starring Sigourney Weaver and John Hurt. We'll be back with our spoiler-filled thoughts after the tone. Stay tuned. Welcome back, everyone. Axis, uh... How did you uh, how did you feel about species? Oh boy! Well, let me tell you, when I sat down to write up my notes for this, I was like, oh, do I have much to say? And then I just wrote the headline: How species tried to be a sexier alien and instead ended up being a much less compelling alien. And then wrote three full pages of notes on that topic. So <laughs> it didn't feel as sexy then. N- yeah, no, no, it failed in every way, including being sexier, which is astonishing. But um, I was considering how much they had to work with. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's especially having these two movies paired together, I think, was a really interesting, um, interesting foray just because Alien is such a classic. We know it. We love it. It was this incredible new direction and kind of extraterrestrial horror. And it's been a classic since then. And so much media references Alien to this day that it's not surprising that other movies, like Species, kind of tried to ride that wave. And the comparisons are pretty damn clear from the beginning. I mean, both movies end in an alien-filled claustrophobia hell filled with flamethrowers and KY jelly. Um, But really, both are about a powerfully predatory alien's singular focus on reproducing and spreading their offspring throughout the galaxy, which is, to be fair, pretty much every organism's goal if we're just not all so good at it. Um, And I think it's really kind of a statement to that fact that even Giger himself complained that the movies were too similar um, because he noted that Sill's alien form, um, the design mirrored the xenomorph too closely and that the ending was derivative of Alien 3, among other numerous complaints. I mean, the imagery of the movies is similar. The concept is similar. They have the same alien designer. And if Species did this tastefully, it could have been tongue-in-cheek or referential, but instead, yes, <laughs> but instead it feels like a cheap copy. Yeah, you know, you know you've really fucking missed the mark when you're trying to go for Alien and they're like, well, you matched one of the aliens. Oh, which one was it? Alien 3. Oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, you did so poorly in your copying job that you missed all of all of the good reference points and went right to the worst ones. Well, I mean, I was 13 when I saw it with my father in theaters back when I was still scared of having my age checked at the door. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel differently about it. Rewatch this thing now, I think maybe four or five times in the last 20 years. And I, I really feel that what keeps getting screwed up when people try to redo Alien... Uh, which was first marketed as Jaws in Space, uh, is the element of isolation. Mm-hmm. Isolation, to me, is one of those key ingredients in horror that makes a horror film perform successfully. There's three frontiers that humankind has yet to properly explore. Space, the sea, 
and the mine. You know, in Jaws, it's being stuck out at sea. In Alien, we're stuck in space. And like in something like The Shining, we're stuck with the worst fucking thing imaginable, ourselves. Right? <laughs> right? Uh-huh. And, you know, people, we know that because cabin fever, right? Cabin fever is just like every time it's struck, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, you know what? That is a nightmare. Um, see also the lighthouse. Uh, <laughs> in Species, Syl is stuck with Syl. And that's terrifying for her because she doesn't have people to guide her through her changes and she's persecuted for them. We're terrified of her and for her. And while I'm trying to enjoy that dynamic, the human team just kept fucking getting in the way. You know, like balancing (laughs) out the genius of this story is a group of hapless dipshits played by arguably the most talented group of actors and actresses. So seriously, I don't know, fucking name a Wes Anderson film. And you know what? Even the Wes Anderson film in horror would probably play out more convincingly than this thing did. Yeah. Watching poor Alfred Molina be stuck in this absolute cesspool. Like, oh, oh, no. (laughs) Like, If you go back and you rewatch Species and Alien with us, notice that the team that's sent to kill Syl is superficially similar to the crew of the Nostromo, right? Mm -hmm. Famous talented well-established actors who are cast to combat an alien and that's all they have in common because it all falls apart in species when the human team tries working together you know i mean the team is isolated in their own way and i think that that also gets in the way of it right madsen is regarded as a grunt whitaker is seen as a fraud with a fragile personality Helgenberger is uh, the most qualified to lead the team, but she has to constantly justify each of her decisions because she's a woman. Uh, Molina's anthropologist has no fucking idea what he's doing. To to the extent that he actually ends up copulating with the thing he's hunting. (laughs) It's like, where's the thing I'm hunting? Oh, my penis is inside of it. It's like, oh, not good, huh? This can only go well. And, And the piece de resistance, they're led by a man who's so insulated from everyone else by way of money, status, and influence Mm -hmm. that he just can't lead. And the result of this all-star grouping is tripping over one another's feet in pursuit of a being who is literally a child in an adult's body, no more than a few days out of containment. I almost hear the Ben Hill theme playing during many of the action and sex sequences. There's so Uh much slapstick humor... You know, wasted on analysis and, you know, and like you said, tongue in cheek references to how sexism doesn't pay off. Uh, You know, we don't really even get to the horror of the matter, which is that these people have no idea how to stop Syl. And it leads to a sloppy dismount with an anticlimactic end. The film really should have ended with, well, I should say it this way. If you ask me, the film really should have ended with Syl having several gorgeous daughters and making the best of a bad situation. And between yes. it all, there's a very lazy romantic subplot thrown in as well. And an even Jesus lazier, I faked my own death subplot. And that's where it just <laughs> broke down. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I very much agree with all of that. There's, I think a lot of that ties into like one of the things that just killed me between the two, kind of in that comparison, was the tone between the two movies. Mm-hmm. Because Alien is so successful in being truly and deeply horrifying. Mm-hmm. The whole thing starts with building the tone of this working camaraderie between the crew of the Nostromo. They're hardworking people on a routine job for whom everything goes terribly, terribly wrong. Yeah. And we watch as they're plunged into abject terror and desperate struggle for survival. They cling to each other, both as a human connection and a literal lifeline. And that means that the tension is palpable throughout the movie. 
Species, on the other hand, feels like it tried to be scary, but then got distracted along the way and also tried to be a buddy cop movie and a rom-com and also maybe a TV sitcom at the same time. Right, way too many freaking directions. Yeah, place. while Syl is busy wreaking havoc on the unsuspecting Earth, the <laughs> while being painted in this bizarrely sympathetic light at the same time, the motley crew hunting her is given the treatment of a quirky cast of sitcom friends. Watching them bicker feels like an off-brand friends reproduction, except their coffee shop sucks and none of them are very likable. <laughs> I mean, and there's no laugh track. <laughs> yeah, because it's a scary movie, remember? Mm -hmm. So we have to sit through the will-they-won't-they they of murder man and science lady while Syl is fucking and murdering her way through L.A. <laughs> and while Alien was one laser-focused plot... Species meanders all over the goddamn map trying to include romance and laugh lines and endearing side characters, all of which undercut what is supposed to be the terror of the situation. It just has no clarity of purpose, which I think just drags it down the entire time you're watching it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, going back just a tick there, when, mm -hmm. when you were mentioning that um, Hans Rudi Giger had said that the that Syl looked a little bit too much like Alien, or that her yeah. look was too close to the Xenomorphs. You know, I would say that the aesthetics were probably one of the few redeeming qualities of the film mm. because of Giger's mm -hmm. work. Um, you know, Giger's biomechanical train was a far more effective symbol for metaphorically <laughs> representing the horrors of puberty than most I've seen. Yeah. You know, I was taken aback to Alice in Wonderland, where we have this rather annoying little white rabbit thumping his feet and tapping his stopwatch to symbolize a woman's biological clock, you know, oh, hearkening back to the Victorian lens of a woman as broodmare. So the train was definitely a modern update I could appreciate, mm -hmm. you know, um, if you can appreciate something like that. <laughs> you know. um, in an interview with the German magazine Focus, uh, Giger told journalist Frank Gerbert that he used to build... Uh, Geisterbahns or haunted train rides as a child and he wanted to have his own ghost train for Chateau de Goyez but he didn't have enough money and I find mm -hmm. it amazing because even though the movie sucked I feel like the story of this train in this film is like its own morbid little children's story the little horror <laughs> engine that could by Hans Rudi Giger you know oh delightful yeah yeah and I really I do wonder kind of the brief Giger was given versus what came into play in the movie because the alien design is another thing I feel like I actually struggled with in Species mm -hmm. and like that nightmare train I think is such effective set building and world building and it's such a brief blip in the movie and yet I spend the entire movie being confused by Syl's alien form and so like that's another thing I could talk about no what do you let me ask though because yeah. this is you're bringing it up perfectly but let me ask then if you had just seen Syl and the train, did you mm -hmm. really need that human team at all? Did, no! Like, right. Wasn't it kind of like superfluous to give that team so much screen time? Absolutely. They're unnecessary when I mean, the only compelling thing in the movie is Syl, and it's like the whole movie is trying to distract you from Syl. <laughs> Yeah, it feels yeah. like maybe we could cut together a more effective short film without, yes. yeah, like maybe, you know, I feel like maybe Species is a great film. It just might be an hour too long. Maybe this works better as technical <laughs> effects, you know, cut cut down to about 20 minutes. I mean, I'd still put Forrest mm -hmm. Whitaker in there for his, for his, you know, I can feel that she's out here kind of thing. But other than yeah. that. 
If yeah. they if you scrapped the entire team and just had Forrest Whitaker, I think I would have enjoyed this movie a lot more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but talking about alien design, that's another thing I want to touch on because the xenomorph is the most iconic alien figure we have in pop culture now. And it's iconic for a reason. It's a true Giger triumph. It's something that's really, truly alien and instinctively threatening. Everything about it is designed to make it inhuman. The height, the long limbs, the absolute void where a face should be. And yet it's really emphatically skeletal in that unique Giger way that makes you sit super uncomfortably with your own mortality. <laughs> but and every step in its life cycle is fully detailed, fully realized, and deeply unsettling. In Species, the design is uh, pretty simple. It's a sexy lady with big alien titties who's super horny. Like, but really, like, what was the thought process there? Because I understand, like, the basic concept. I understand that she is supposed to be the per just perfectly appealing for reproduction. I understand why she's a hot blonde lady. Except from the actual DNA perspective, I do not understand how the alien would understand the social construct of attractiveness in 1995 America, but I can suspend that disbelief for plot purposes. But what I do not understand is why her alien form looks so human. Yeah. The idea that she's a fusion of human and alien DNA seems almost plausible, but then if that's the case, then why are her weird alien wet dreams of her human-esque alien form even before that body developed? Right. Young Sil is having those visions before she has even manifested that body. And she's having these primal, instinctual visions of alien fucking with a male of her own species. So why wouldn't we see a purely female, kind of purely alien version of the female of her species? Which seems to imply that the big titty alien version is what she naturally looks like. And then that makes no sense. So why would the alien so closely follow the path of human evolution? And then because we've the placed whole... it together with our DNA. Yes, but how would she know that? So if she was having these visions before her alien form had ever manifested and she's having these like flashbacks, like wouldn't she be seeing the pure alien version of her? I think what you're saying Okay. So let me ask it this way. Is it more important as her form, how she knows it? Because I think what you started off talking about was how she was designed. Because that's mm -hmm. where I'm with you on it, where, where yeah. she looks too human. When you look at the way she was designed, it really feels like somebody wrote H.R. Giger like, like a letter and like drew the alien like with two boobs and was like think gi joe with like with ultra lethal <laughs> nipple action jesus and christ yeah in terms of the story i feel that it's not sill consciously doing it it's her mm -hmm. you know arguably engineered uh malacoque xenomorph dna that is making her look extra mm -hmm. attractive so yeah. that she can do her, uh, so that she can do her transformer act later on. I thought that the transformer thing was kind of cool. It does kind of make sense that she would look so symmetrical, and that she would look so attractive because, at the same time, not many women look like Natasha Henstridge in the sense <laughs> of that amount of symmetry or in yeah. that kind of shape. She is meant to be sort of a, not only an idealism but a kind of. Um, I kind of think back to a story by Fritz Leiber, 
which is uh, The Girl with the Hungry Eyes, which is a very, very successful vampire story, where mm-hmm. it was a very different type of vampire. It was a vampire that lived on billboards, and uh, she was absorbing energy from attention. And so I feel like, in that sense, Syl is definitely built to kill. Syl is definitely mm-hmm. built to dominate, because she's meant to go out and copulate and be able to eliminate her competition and i mean she's proven she can do that yeah. she, you know like she's hot enough to get anyone she wants and if anybody gets in the way you know their spinal column simply going to be missing the next morning so sure yeah i think i think my problem with it fundamentally comes down to those like instinct kind of dream flashback slash future things that we mm-hmm. have because i think it just feels so out of place that we're seeing a male alien presumably Mm -hmm. that she's you know having sex with and that looks so otherworldly and threatening absolutely but then she just looks like a green lady more or less Mm -hmm. (laughs) like i think i think it would have been more powerful to me if we had gotten to see what a purely alien version of her looked like and then got to see her form manifested on earth and that being more of the the human alien halfway Instead, like, I feel like it's losing some of the power of how alien she could be. Absolutely. Which I think also makes her design seem so weak after having alien as a comparison point. Because the xenomorph is terrifying because of how alien it is. Syl is too recognizable. She feels like she feels like she stepped out of tentacle porn, not a nightmare. And plus, her nipple tentacles made me laugh. And that is not a good sign for your monster. <laughs> like, you never want the monster's powers to be the funny joke. <laughs> like... When I think about movies like Milo, where it's like a demon that's living in your rectum, I think that there are times where it can be, it's, it's definitely not a good sign in terms of delivering fear. I would say right. that, that I kind of enjoy the fact that it asphyxiated a guy because it was taking his pleasure and, and turning it on its head. So that's true. That I, I can appreciate. Yeah. I just yeah, I think it falls into that same thing where like I feel like there's not a real clarity of tone or purpose in the movie where it keeps trying to be scary and then like undercutting itself. But yes, yes, I see what you're saying there too though. Like my big my big third point in in the comparisons and the one that I think was really the clincher for me in between them was looking at the power dynamics that's built in. Yeah. Because I feel like the great drama in Alien comes from the fact that the crew is so immensely unqualified to deal with a xenomorph. Mm -hmm. They are a freighter crew. They are meant to move cargo, not handle first contact, and certainly not handle intensive space combat. The power imbalance that's there is immeasurable from the very beginning of the movie, and that makes all of the action so much more impressive. Any successes are against staggering odds, which I think is kind of a hallmark of good horror. And Ripley's ultimate victory feels absolutely euphoric after watching her desperately struggle for survival. In Species, the team trying to find Syl is made up of the most qualified people for the job. Scientists, an empath, a hopped-up bounty hunter, and an entire Black Ops military operation. They had every single resource available to them and still managed to be wildly incompetent and unsuccessful. Syl eludes them at every turn, and I think that was supposed to prove how terrifying her power is and how unstoppable she is, 
But I feel like it does the opposite. Yeah, it punches a gigantic hole in willing suspension of disbelief. Yes! It makes me lose all sympathy for the ineffectual turnips who are hunting her and makes me feel sympathetic towards Syl, who would murder me in a heartbeat and yet I do not care because I would much rather watch the bloated bureaucrat that is Fitch be stabbed and drowned since at no point in the movie are you rooting for the ostensible heroes. You're not. You're not. No. And by the end of the movie, I felt disappointed when they were blasting Syl with a flamethrower in the big grand finale because it felt so unsatisfying. After you spend an hour and a half watching Syl be the perfect predator, it was such a letdown to see her fall to a meathead with a big gun. I also felt that there should have really been more of a standoff scene. I really thought that there, mm-hmm. you know, normally in films like this, where we have the government hunting for a very powerful killer, um, my mind goes immediately to, and forgive me fans if I'm wrong here, but my mind immediately goes to Terminator, which is when Arnold Schwarzenegger shows up at a police precinct and decides he's going for his target. Um, and he mows mm-hmm. down about, oh, I don't know, half of the police department or most of the police department in pursuit of Sarah Connor. Uh, I thought it would have been much cooler if they had, like, mm-hmm. set up a trap where it was a bunch of attractive guys from the Navy and the Army. <laughs> oh, come on, you know it would happen. They'd, yep, just be yep. like, they'd be just like, you know, we're looking for a, a really hot female alien. You could just see guys from the fire department just taking their shirts off, being like, I volunteer for the job, right? Just to... <laughs> Just so that they can, like, make bets with who she's going to hit on and be like, yeah, yeah, I'm the guy who landed her, right? Because we all know that guys are meatheads like that. Oh, absolutely. And then just watch her tear them the fuck apart. Like, there's 40 of them, and they're like, oh, baby, we got to kill you now. And she's like, yeah. Like, like, like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, you know, Angelina Jolie is just like, yeah, who's your daddy now? I bet she'd just, like, mow down the whole fucking lot of them. That, to me, would have been worth watching. And then at yeah. least, then at least we would have cleared out things in a much more satisfying way. Like watching... Very true. Right? Getting Melina killed, or especially Kingsley, just getting rid of Kingsley. There were so many other ways to do it in a, in a creative fashion. And I feel that mm-hmm. there was a lot of... um missed opportunities yeah speaking of i think that that kind of ties nicely into my favorite review i found of species which came from christine james from box office she gave it a whopping two out of five stars describing it as quote alien meets v meets splash meets playboy's erotic fantasies forbidden liaisons diluted into a diffuse misdirected bore (laughs) i'm like bless you christine james for for really bringing it all home i mean I don't want to totally rag on it. There are there are actually things I did like about Species. Like the whole thing was a very neat Frankenstein story, which I liked. Dr. Fitch is the perfect Dr. Frankenstein, obsessed with creating this unnatural creature of perfection that then of course goes haywire when he can't handle the reality of his own creation and decides to abandon slash murder it. And I thought the whole alien con- the kind of alien communication concept was very cool. Um, Dennis Feldman, the writer of Species, said that he was kind of reflecting on the immense challenges involved in traversing the huge expanses of space and considered it much more realistic to send information rather than a spaceship. And that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, humans have been hopefully sending messages into space for years, so it seems perfectly logical to expect one back. Um, but the horror is supposed to come from no. being able to create it. Okay. Not if Oumuamua is any indication. Like, you know, the thing came, made a right angle, locked the car doors, and just kept fucking driving as fast as it could. 
So that's no. true. Yeah. But, you know, the creating the monster for the message is interesting. But I can't, I also can't give species too much credit for that because that whole concept was pretty neatly ripped from the earlier 1961 British TV series A for Andromeda. So if there was more record of that, I think I would probably enjoy watching A for Andromeda more. Right. <laughs> and the last thing I'll say for species is that it did gift me perhaps my all-time favorite movie-related fact, which is that it probably created the myth of the chupacabra. <laughs> um, <laughs> so for anyone who does not know, the first reported chupacabra sighting was in August 1995 in Puerto Rico by a woman named Madeline Tolentino. She provided a very detailed description of her sighting of the chupacabra in the town of Canovanas, where she, an estimated 150 domestic animals were killed. And by her own admission, the creature she saw bore a striking similarity to Sill's alien form from species, spines and all. Skeptics, who then investigated this incident later, said that Tolentino may have had definitely seen the movie before her sighting, and they are sure that it distinctly influenced her account of the chupacabra, either consciously or unconsciously. And this, this, I am convinced, is the greatest legacy of Species. Not the three sequels, we don't talk about those. It is that Species directly created the chupacabra. <laughs> I am definitely going to look into that. It's but. delightful. It's really great if you look up the lore of it. It's so, oh, it just yeah. tickles me pink. <laughs> that is, oh my God. Being a cryptozoologist. <laughs> what did she find out there? A woman, big breasted, mm -hmm. on all fours, drinking from goats. <laughs> what did you do? I got her more goats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very scary. Lots of spines. Also just... Big old boobs. Right. Just really big boobs. Seemed really thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's a doozy. So, let's talk about sci-fi horror's most powerful franchise. Yeah. Alien. Now, we can't really start with Alien without talking about the father of biomechanical, Hans Rudy Giger. Even though... He had already acquired a lot of attention in 1977 via his Necronomicon collection. Alien was the major breakthrough for the surrealist painter that won him an Oscar. And Biomechanical was clearly a gift to the world because Alien's aesthetics are still so unique that after four decades, filmmakers have yet to create anything that's come even close to being as iconic for horror sci-fi. Um, one thing I do an awful lot of uh, is break down stories to create something new uh, in my writing groups, uh, but with Alien, that's proven to be a tricky task over the years. Uh, because if somebody came to me and said, Moner, I want to write about a life form that starts as a vagina hand-shaped parasite nestled all cozy in an egg sac that springs out <laughs> and smothers people with embryos which grows into penis-headed monsters that break through your chest and either grow into a queen or a drone that melts you into more eggs, I would definitely, definitely, definitely ask what you were eating before bed, because I'm pretty sure whatever the fuck that was was the cure to writer's block forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have shelves of books dedicated to understanding Stoker's Dracula or Wollstonecraft Shelley's Frankenstein, but... If those are chocolate cake, then I would argue that Alien is like turducken because no one else could pull <laughs> off Ridley Scott's vision of what Alien was. 
But as many box set and fan documentaries have testified, there was a whole kitchen of cooks that went into making Alien. Ron Cobb, John Mobius Gerard, Dan O'Bannon, Ron Shusett, and Alan Dean Foster, who's still doing the novelizations. And then there's all the tidbits, like the facehugger was inspired by a fossilized prehistoric starfish fighting a cryonid that were both suddenly suffocated in mud. Or that the Nostromo spaceship is named after Joseph Conrad's novel of the same name. There's just, you know, thing after thing after thing. You know, like people are like, oh, you know, I don't understand Hans Rudi Giger's vision. When people look at Giger's work for the first time, uh, they see ashen textures that were often airbrushed onto gigantic murals. They often regard his work as a mystery. But I think anybody who takes the time to learn about Giger will see that his work is a beautiful mosaic of his own life experiences. Um, Giger was influenced by three artists, Dado, Fuchs, and Salvador Dali. Uh, he was also friends with Dr. Timothy Leary and appropriately created under the influence of LSD. And when you add his background uh, coming from the Swiss mining village, Kur, the aesthetic makes a lot more sense. You know, it's you can actually, you know, whenever I look at it, I kind of think of an ossuary, um, which is, right, these churches mm-hmm. where monks would arrange bones after the plague. There were just so many bodies. They took bones and they turned them into ornate patterns, chandeliers and other things that made up the church. And then if you, you know, if you look at the mining and, you know, how, how Giger felt about industrialization, that also made a lot of sense. And it's just funny because people come away with different feelings every time they look at the biomechanical um, patterns or forms. You know, and Necronom is, of course, the, the more famous of those of those byproducts from his work. Uh, I think it was Necronoms 1 through 4 that were kind of remixed to create what we have as a xenomorph today. Um, but then there's, you know, if you, if you go and you ask somebody else what they think about it when they look at it, um, other friends have said, oh, it's a beetle. It looks like a big beetle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it feels like an oversimplification. But then, like, <laughs> no, actually, it does look like a big beetle. Yeah, so it's... yeah there's a very insectoid kind of chitin exoskeleton mm-hmm. element there. And, and the fact that they bleed green and that everything that they touch seems to turn, you know, they seem to melt things and, and turn everything mm-hmm. into hives, right? So there is an insect element there, but it's really weird yeah. and freaky, right? Yeah, it's that's especially interesting considering, like, when you look at close-ups of the kind of xenomorph design, how there's so much what looks like human skeleton. Like, Giger loves bones. Mm-hmm. Giger just loves bones. Even as a kid. Even as a mm-hmm. kid. Mm-hmm. Like, you can see it in the alien's hands. You can see it when you're looking at, I mean, when you're looking at the space jockey design, there are bones everywhere. So it's really interesting to see that fusion of the very bony exterior versus the absolute smoothness of that kind of head carapace that you have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the thing that I kind of enjoy most is how years ago when he was a kid, he was into bones and he, I think he took a, I think he stole a a skull from his father. I forget exactly how it came about, but he ended up just taking a skull from his father and he was actually kind of amazed at the at the concept that you could own a human being and that's how his little mind processed yeah. it it's like oh i own this now and so he would just like be walking around with a little wagon just pulling that skull behind him you know and <laughs> no um, that's fair I, I mean i have a human rib at home and that's weird as shit <laughs> like... i think i think that a lot of people collect bones i mean i know that i definitely have i have like antler chandeliers and stuff here oh, in the yeah. house I, oh I, yeah, no, I had lots of animal bones. It was, but getting my first human bone right. felt very different. 
<laughs> like very different. This is somebody's. This is someone's. Right. Room. I'm like, this came out of a like a body that is like my body and I am holding it in my hands. And like <laughs> suddenly it was like a much different processing point than where I'm like, oh, deer skull is pretty. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, whenever I look at it, I always think that um, that aesthetic was so unbelievable for its time even to come out and we've we've really never matched it we've never got we've never come even close people have, i mean and we're going to see over the next you know mm-hmm. few years there have been tons of knockoffs and there's just like suit after suit after suit where people are trying to to copy it but even today yeah. like if you if you're used to geeker's work you can usually see pretty quickly when somebody has just been trying to quickly copy it because yeah. yeah like when Giger passed away there were people doing tribute pieces and I mean no disrespect to them it was beautiful mm-hmm. that they, they tried but there were a lot of bi- biomechanical pieces where you looked at it and you thought could that be Giger's and then you look at it and it's like no it's actually not intricate enough and you know it never really I don't think it dawned on to me in, like maybe until my mid-20s when I start to really look into Necronomicon and look into the way that Giger would create things and just see how gigantic these murals were that he was airbrushing together. And, you know, he really had his own vision of how this landscape and world would look, you know, and he would often, you know, people would really get angry in the beginning before he was famous. People would walk by his shop where places where his uh, paintings were hanging, they'd spit in the window and it was really a shame because they just, you know, they didn't understand it. They didn't see it. They thought he was just naturally evil or something. But he was always saying, you know, if you take the normal world that we live in and you cover it in human skin, it's not going to be too far off from what I create. And that's mm-hmm. actually how we felt about industrialization, which is that it's, you know, that it's definitely uh, affected the earth and that it hasn't really benefited it. And uh, yeah. when we look at something like, you know, whales getting pulled out of the ocean, uh, with stomachs filled with plastic, or we see, um, you know, something like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Uh, there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely something to what Giger was saying. You know, for sure. I mean, and it's, it is kind of becoming this part of nature. Like when you look at, I, lo- I mean, I both love and hate the, these images I have of hermit crabs, mm-hmm. like where they start using pieces of plastic and glassware mm-hmm. as their shells, because that's what's accessible to them. It's mm-hmm. like nature in many ways is beginning to fuse with our kind of industrial output it's terrifying you know, even the concept that our dna could be fusing with microplastics is terrifying mm. it's a terrifying concept yeah. yeah yeah and just backtracking a little bit i mm. think one of the things that was interesting too about specifically how powerful the designs in alien are um for the xenomorph and for all of those life stages mm-hmm. Is I mean, I think obviously it very much comes down to Giger. He is the heart of it. But it went through so many hands. Like when you're looking at the process of that, how many, how much workshopping there was, how much communication between Ridley Scott, between the design team, between so many different people who really fully realized this vision, which I think, I'm sure, just strengthened the end product. And it created something that was beyond just Giger's vision, beyond just Ridley Scott's vision. And was a product of a huge team of people working on it. And I think that that's something that 
it doesn't seem like species benefited from in the same no. way. I mean, I know it was a different working process because Giger was very invested in Alien, but when he was working on species, um, I think that was while his mom was dying, so mm-hmm. he stayed stayed home and he was just kind of sending sketches off to them. There was some review process, but he was not able to be involved in the same way. So without that kind of workshopping and that kind of back and forth, that discussion, and without the vision from the rest of the team, I'm sure that's part of why species suffered as well. Yeah. I don't think we saw anything comparable when it came to species and aliens. The only original construction in species, as far as I know, was the sewer system. Yeah, and that was not not as compelling as the interior of the Nostromo. I mean, I don't... And, and it's really a shame because it had potential because it was a mm-hmm. melding of modern, you know, modern life with the biomechanical instead of putting it into a vacuum. But I don't really know if that helped it or hurt it. Right. Yeah. So that's also another thing that's kind of up in the air. Let me ask, how do you feel about the idea that people are spending a fortune? Because I won't say which film it is or I won't, sp- okay. I won't say how much it is. But how do you feel about the idea that people are going out and spending a fortune on a certain brand of sneakers um, (laughs) where it wasn't even the original sneakers that were being worn on the Nostromo? Uh You you work with costume design every once in a while. I do. Right. So like, because um, I'm guessing it's a pair of low top canvas shoes, some D-rings, and Mm -hmm. is it leather? Is it? white polish or is it white paint the sneakers the the weird sneakers that Mm -hmm. they use in after alien one bizarre design very bulky yes i believe it's like i believe it's it's best summarizes (laughs) (laughs) yeah um i i feel like i can't be i know fashion is cyclical it'll probably come around again but it's a very 80s kind of sensibility that Mm. is Perhaps not my style. Hmm. Big fan of the uh, of the shoes worn in the original Alien on the Nostromo. I, I'm sure I'm pretty sure that in our watch along, I was like, "Oh, look at her shoes!" At one point, because every time they come up, I'm like, "Oh, look at their shoes." Um, I am, of course, a, I'm a big fan of like a simple white canvas high top kind of shoe. But if you look up close-ups of the shoe f- from the Nostromo, it's pretty straightforward. It looks like they just took a totally not brand named <laughs> Converse sneaker um, and <laughs> in, instead of you know just all of the eyes where you would put the laces through they just replaced all of those with a little d-ring grommet just kind of put that directly through the lace hole and then relaced it through the d-ring grommets that were just white enamel so if you just get white enamel d-rings like with the mounting put those through put those through the the threading the kind of eyes on on your white sneakers ta-da you have the shoes from, from the nostromo and how much would and that cost like two thousand three thousand dollars you know um perhaps five dollars oh, okay. okay. <laughs> just making sure maybe ten if you're ordering in bulk okay <laughs> um Assuming you have the sneakers already, let's say you thrift the sneakers for five dollars, you spend five dollars on the hardware, it's a ten dollar pair of sneakers. Right. Okay. So it's not like two or three grand. All right, good to know. It is not know. two or three grand. Right. Um, and right. it's simple, it's classy, you can wear them everywhere. Mm-hmm. That's that's kind of my, my goal for any kind of a fan wear that I have. It's something that I, it should look good in its own right without you having to know what it's from. The sneakers they right. wear on the Nostromo, they look baller. They're great shoes, right. when, whether you're on the Nostromo or not. 
Yeah, I I mean, we know I love I loved their jumpsuits, I loved their <laughs> sneakers, and things went downhill after Alien. Yeah. When when we watch Aliens, I'm going to have some shit to say about the fashion and I know it. <laughs> I have some shit to say about everything in that movie. Mhm. Well, for Earth Day, there's always new ways to be more conscious about helping the environment, like biodegradable urns or paper straws. However, I would like to recommend investing in tote bags instead of letting the cashier bag things in plastic bags. That's my recommendation for this month. Uh, No websites, no charities, no none of that. Uh, It's a very simple idea. Um, I've lived in Germany for a decade now. And if there is one thing I try my best to do whenever I go home to America, it's to bag my own stuff in bags that will last. Um, For one thing, I like the fact that you can personalize your own bags and uh, increase their durability. I also think that we waste an insane amount of money on plastic every year. I know it sounds like it's a crazy idea, but if you try it out, it's, it's really much better for you. Like if you've ever sat down and counted the amount of plastic throughout that you throw out... You're just not going to use it, really. Yeah, I'm very much like a grandma where I have just a stockpile of 8,000 plastic bags under my sink that I will never use. But I have some hella cute tote bags that I love pulling out at the grocery store. I just keep them folded up in my purse or my backpack or whatever I have. And then I whip out three bags that fold up to the size of a wallet. Super easy. Also, I'm living in New York right now. um, And here in right at the beginning of March, the... Uh, bag ban just went into effect so plastic bags are out you have to charge for paper bags I know a lot of other urban areas are doing this so it's something where I think obviously we're being pushed in that direction as well but even if you're not in one of those areas you know take take the burden upon yourself don't wait to be told it's uh it helps out feels good for you and you know the funny thing is don't see it as a negative it really is yeah this is it, it may sound very weird but you know using tote bags you know, is kind of an opportunity to personalize, you know, your everyday life and just in another mm-hmm. aspect, you know, you buy your own music, you know, you have your own mixtapes, uh, you know, you got, you've got your own way of approaching life. Uh, your tote bags are the same idea. You know, your bags don't have to look like everybody else's bags. It can be something that's completely yeah. individualized. So my favorite tote bag has sharks and murderous mermaids on it. Would mm-hmm. highly recommend. Yeah, there's there's also a xenomorph tote bag floating around somewhere Hell online. Yeah. In fact, I think there's several now. Um, but there are, <laughs> you know, there's several. I think there's a damask patterned xenomorph tote bag. If one goes looking hard enough, uh, they're fantastic looking. They're you know they definitely make a statement. It's just a matter of you know a little bit of a conscious push. Um, in Germany, uh, I learned it through trial and error. Uh, I would go, I would walk, you know, six blocks to the supermarket, get there, buy everything. And then I'd be like, oh, I have to go back home and I'm shit out of luck because I forgot to bring the bags with me. And <laughs> yeah, and then I walked back and you know, I was conditioned into it. But I also think that it's, it's really not the worst way to go because it's just mm-hmm. less plastic. I don't miss it at all. I think it's a very positive change. And, I, and it really... You know, it's it's not like uh, you're spending thousands and thousands of dollars on a tote bag. I think it's also a much, uh, much more conscious decision uh, than most when, when one wants to do something positive for the earth. Yeah. Also, if you're crafty, I will say that is a great opportunity to like pull out those old T-shirts that you can't wear anymore, but you love the graphics on. Make a tote bag. Super simple. Then you get a new life out of that. I've done that a few times and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. The last thing that I want to say on the record, this 
doesn't directly relate to the movies, but I have just noticed, what is it with horror movies and cats? I mean, obviously, I appreciate cat content. I am their biggest fan. But we're now at four out of eight movies with prominent cats. I mean, actually, Species. Species had a brief cat appearance, too. So I think that puts us at five out of eight movies, unless I forgot one. God forbid I forget a cat. But is horror biased towards cats. Scholars get on it. I feel like we're doing the informal research here, but this is the peer-reviewed research study that I want to see. So please, I'm just manifesting it in the world. Tweet me if you have thoughts. I just, I want to know. I'm, I'm loving it so far. <laughs> the Late Night, a horror podcast, is brought to you by Monar T. Lawrence. Find us at monaria.com and The Late Night Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.